Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And if you know the myth of the Amazon women, that race of women warriors, it's probably in connection with Hercules' labors. In his ninth labor, the famous strongman is ordered to bring back the girdle of Hippolyta, the queen of the Amazons. Yeah, and even Hercules knows that he's not going to be able to handle the women alone. And so he brings friends along as backup for his mission. And it, it's lucky for him he does. But that's a pretty serious reputation. I mean, I know it's a legend, but still, it's a serious reputation. Definitely. And it makes sense, though, considering that in Greek myth, the Amazons were also believed to be descended from Ares, the god of war. I think Ares even gave Hippolyta that stolen girdle. But there are a lot of stories about where this race of women came from. And most of them have the women living in what is today Turkey. Um, but probably they're more famous for the stories about their their fighting and the things they would do to themselves and the things they do as a as a group. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think that Everyone thinks of them as a force to be reckoned with, and their name actually indicates that. I think their name came from a Greek word that means breastless, since legend had them cutting off or burning their right breasts in youth so that they could handle a bow easier. Pretty extreme length to go to just to be able to use a weapon. But And the bow wasn't the only weapon they used. They also carried swords and double-sided axes. Yeah, and to ensure a constant supply of new warriors, because they were, of course, an all-women group, they'd couple up with nearby men or or male prisoners and raise the girl babies as Amazons and either kill or maim the boys or raise them as servants or return them to their fathers. Probably the best course there. Um, But, of course, the Amazon women of Greek legend are mythical, even if there may have been some female fighters who existed. But fortunately, the ladies of our podcast are not mythical. They did very much exist. And we're going to be talking about several of them today from around the world. And some of them may be ones that you suggested or told us about. We have mentioned this on previous podcasts, the possibility of doing this list. And so we've been excited about it for a while and solicited some some nominations on Facebook. Kind of our like big blowout for Women's History Month, our big celebration. <laughs> um, even though we should we should mention before we start, we don't wish to glamorize violence. No, we're going to talk about some really tough, cool ladies who did some kind of violent, sometimes uh, terrible, sometimes things. really not so great things. And so um, definitely no, we're not condoning this behavior. We're just celebrating <laughs> women and looking a little more into the history of some of these women that a lot of there's not really a lot of definitive information out there about some of them. So we had to dig dig some up. Yeah, but we're going to start off in Japan with a lady who's probably one of the few true female samurai in Japanese histories, and at the very least, one of the most famous. Yes, um, and her name is Nakano Takeko. Her most well-known warrior encounter took place during Japan's Boshin Civil War in 1868. Now, during this period, Japan was engulfed in battles between supporters of the old Tokugawa shogun regime, which was the military-style government, and the newly established imperial government. And I think we're all pretty familiar with 
the idea of samurai, right? Yeah, Katie and I even did an episode on samurai and the ronin, if you want to go refresh your memories a little bit. Yeah, it was the warrior class up to this point, and most of the time we see them depicted as men. But author Diana E. Wright, who wrote about female combatants of this time for the journal War and History, she says that women of the warrior class in Aizu, which is the domain that Nakano was from, were actually expected to learn some hand-to-hand combat skills themselves. They at least had to know the basics. And this was to, quote, protect their wards and prevent their families from being dishonored. So they weren't just weak women hiding in the household every time someone, a threat came. Yeah, but Nakano took it a step beyond that. She definitely got a little bit more than the basic. She was born in 1847, and she was adopted out to Akayoka Ayanosuke, who was a master of martial arts and calligraphy, too. And he taught halberd skills to the lady of the domain, who was the lord of the domain's adopted sister, kind of the chief noblewoman in the in the area. And he also trained Nakano and 20 other girls in combat techniques. So um, just to give you a, an idea about what the halberd is, too, like this is serious combat techniques. The halberd is a, a long staff with, I think, an axe head attached to it. So you had to be very strong and very agile to to manage it. Yeah, and you definitely wouldn't want to see one of these coming at you. So if you were fighting with one, you meant business. And these skills that these girls were using really came in handy around the time that we're talking about when Imperial forces invaded Aizu in late fall 1868. So by October 8th, the situation had gotten so bad for warrior family members that the official watch bell sounded. And this prompted women of the warrior class to do one of a few things. One was mass suicide. They didn't want to be taken alive. They didn't want to fight. So they decided to kill themselves rather than face this terrible fate. Or they could decide to do that. Right. They could make the decision themselves. The other option was withdrawing within Crane Castle, which was a pretty fortified castle, and they could help out with the defense there so they could help defend their community. But what Nakano did was the last option, which was to take part in direct combat. So she became part of what was known as the Joshigan, which was an ad hoc volunteer platoon organized by women of warrior families and had about 20 to 30 women. This is what historians think. And Nakano's mom was the leader. But Wright says that Nakano Takeko was actually the driving force of the group. And these women all sort of they dressed in men's clothing. They cut their hair. So they had the appearance of young men. Yeah, and so this group of women heard that the lady of the domain, Terohime, had been taken to a post station to the northwest of Aizu. So they decided they were going to go rescue her, go to her aid. And once they were there, they got there later that same night, they asked permission from the commander of the brigade uh, that was there if they could join his, of course, all-male forces. He refused, though. He said that... Well, you women are, of course, well-equipped and you're impressive looking, but you would embarrass us, essentially. If our enemy saw Aizu women participating in combat, they might take it as a sign of weakness. So he refuses them. Yeah, they're kind of upset about this, but they've learned that the lady of the domain is probably back at the castle at this point. She's not there at the post station. So they sort of agree to hang out for a night. By the next day, though, they are given audience with another commander at Takaku post station. And he also rejects them, although he's very impressed by them as well. And he decides that they should go back to Crane Castle and he sends them with another troop of soldiers. 
But the commander of that troop, who was actually charged with escorting them back to the castle, he says, okay, no, you guys can be an actual unit. He designates the women as a separate squad and Nakano Takeko as the leader of that squad. So they're allowed to fight. They're going to get to do it. Their fortunes are changing. And their chance to fight comes really soon. In fact, it comes the next day on October 10th. Imperial forces had positioned themselves at Yanangi Bridge, which was basically along the road between the post station and the castle, the road they were taking. And the Aizu troops came at the Imperial forces from three sides. So they were mixed with the men's group at this point, and uh, they they split up two men's divisions coming at the sides. The women's squad was part of the one that attacked the enemy head on. Yeah, there were some men mixed in as well, but most of the women were, all of the women, in fact, were part of this group that was taking him head on. And their goal was to sort of strike suddenly and break through the enemy's forces rather than trying to engage them in a long battle because they knew they probably didn't have great chances there since the Imperial Army had better weapons than they did and they just wanted to get back to the castle, to their destination. Where they could actually defend it. Right. But combat did devolve into hand-to-hand battle. And once the Imperial Army determined that they were fighting women, they started to spread the word and try that they should try to take the women alive. And that was, as we mentioned, the one thing the women absolutely did not want. This was for a lot of reasons. I think that they just had no illusions about their fate if they were to be captured, and they were afraid that they would be sold to, quote, Occidentals, so sold off to the West somewhere, and they just didn't want that to happen. They wanted to decide their own fate, so they charged directly into the fire. Yeah, and many, they, they perform pretty well. I mean, of course, it was, it was brave to make this direct charge, but they also took many imperial lives, Nakano Takiko in particular. And we want to sort of paint a picture for you of what Nakano looked like in battle. Uh, she was described as having tied back hair, trousers, and steely eyes, and she supposedly radiated an intense male spirit and engaged the enemy troops, killing five or six with her halberd. Um, but she was eventually shot through the chest at the height of that battle. Yeah, her little sister, Masuko, had to sever her head with the help of an Aizu soldier. So this was to prevent it from becoming a trophy for the other side and taken back to the other side. So they wrapped it in a scarf and cremated it after the battle. So gave her a little bit of honor later. And I think Sabrina and I have been kind of horrified by this image for most of the day. Yes, uh, I think Masuko was about 16 years old at this time, so having to cut off her older sister's head. But she saw this as her duty, you know, to preserve her family's honor. Yeah, so another Amazon woman in the making. And I guess that brings us to the next entry on our list. We're going to change continents entirely and talk about one of the famous female pirates of all time, Grace O'Malley. Yeah, we talked about another pirate lady a few weeks ago in another podcast, Chungi Sao. And this one, Grace O'Malley, is actually known to many as the Pirate Queen of Ireland. So it kind of has her own little nickname. She's also known sometimes, you'll, you might see her named as Grania, her Irish name. Either way, Grace O'Malley was born around 1530. Her father was chieftain of the O'Malley clan. So around this time, there really wasn't a central government. Instead, there were about 60 clans which were ruled individually by chieftains. And they 
As you might guess, they settled most disagreements at that time over land or whatever it was through clan warfare. Contentious times. So the O'Malley clan controlled a large part of the western coast of Ireland, and they owned a large fleet of ships. And initially, they had a legit living going on. They um, traded with other countries and, um, you know, made made money in an honest way. But eventually, merchants in Galway banned clans who lived outside the city from trading there. So they were out of money and out of work. So to compensate, the O'Malley's started to charge a toll to all the ships that entered a bay that was one of the popular routes to Galway. So if you couldn't pay the toll, too bad for you, your ship would get plundered. So it's it's non-negotiable. And Grace O'Malley was obviously interested in joining this family business. Yeah, but at first her dad, as many dads would, he refused and maybe jokingly said to her, no, your long hair is going to get tangled in the ship's rope. So she cut her hair off, and that's how she became known by probably her most famous nickname, Grace the Bald. After that, her dad gave in and let her join his little pirate team that he had going. Yeah, and she proved a very able pirate of sorts. She could read currents and tides and the weather. She was good on on board the ship. She could manage the sails and anchors and navigate. And she was she was good at the pirate work too. She could raid cargo and help defend her clan shores. So she proved to be a very able member of the O'Malley clan. She did, however, give it up briefly, right? She gave it up when she married Donald O'Flaherty, who was chieftain of the O'Flaherty clan, and she married him in 1546 and became a mother to three of his children. O'Flaherty was an interesting character in himself. He was His clan was enemies with another clan called the Joyce clan, and they gave him the nickname Donald the Cock, and his castle, therefore, was known as Cock's Castle. So after Donald dies in 1560, while battling the Joyce clan, the Joyces immediately try to overpower Grace, but she surprised them by fighting back. She successfully defends her property with the help of her followers. And just an example of the ingenuity she uses in her battling, she had her men dismantle the castle tower's lead roof, melt it down, and pour it on her attackers. That's pretty scary. Yeah. Again, don't try this at home. <laughs> And the castle then became known as Hen's Castle. So definitely a shift in who's in charge here, right? Definitely letting everybody know. So the O'Flaherty's were definitely impressed by Grace successfully defending the castle. And she really proved by doing so that she could fight not only at sea, but on land as well. And by the 1570s, she was directing a force of hundreds of men in both types of battles. So it was her full-time business by this point. Yeah, and when her father died, it became even bigger. She inherited his fleet and for a while was the O'Malley. Clan's new chieftain, too. But she also participated in some political stuff as well. She fought the English Tudor dynasty's encroachment into Ireland, which ended up being kind of her downfall. She was arrested on multiple occasions and her fleets were raided. She eventually petitioned Queen Elizabeth I directly for some support, which she received, but her business was closely monitored after that, and she ended up dying impoverished in her early 70s. Yeah, but interestingly, that relationship with Queen Elizabeth is why we know so much about Grace today, because 
The Queen got Grace to fill out a document called 18 Articles of Interrogatory, and she had to answer all these questions about her marriages or children or properties and um, put it all down on paper. And that's why we know so much about Grace the Bald today, fortunately. Yeah, thanks, Queen Elizabeth. The next group of women we're going to talk about didn't have a very clear-cut survey like that for us to go off of, did they, Sarah? Yeah, because the other entries on the list so far have been individuals, women who took up arms for personal reasons. This group of women, they were actually an army, so we're going to treat them as such and not focus on any specific people. Um, they, They were an army, though. They weren't a last resort. They weren't these accidental warriors. They were chosen and they were trained and they were deployed as any army would be. So they're really kind of a a standalone group for this podcast. So the Dahomey Kingdom in West Africa needed highly trained warriors for, for many reasons. Everybody needs a group of highly trained warriors, I guess. But in part, it was because of its own actions. The king would launch annual raids, slave raids on nearby areas and buy the captured prisoners and sell them to European slave traders. So obviously that didn't win many neighborhood friends. No, not at all. But the women, actually, the warrior women, they weren't originally set up to defend the kingdom. They were originally formed as a group of elephant huntresses, actually. Which is a surprise. (laughs) Yeah, and they were trained as royal guards and warriors after that. Yeah, so the women were drafted from non-Dahomean slaves, and therefore they were considered very reliable and trustworthy because they didn't have tribal connections and families like the the men, the male recruits might. So they, they were you could you could rely on your your Dahomean women force, but by 1850, a king named Gizo shook up this process of selecting the troops a little bit, and he made it kind of a a draft almost. Every three years, families would present their daughters to a royal board, and the prettiest of the young women would enter the harem, and the strongest would enter the service. And some were actually not selected this way, but they were turned over by their husbands for being unruly or something. If the husbands couldn't handle them, they would perhaps recommend them to the king or more likely complain about them to the king, and the king would take them into the elite fighting group really puts a different spin on marital relations with that. But by the 1880s, the Dahomey women became a political power as well, since their officers were noble women. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit about life as one of these Dahomey women. It was a major step up from from the average life of a woman in the kingdom. Um They got a lot more privileges and a lot more respect, but they were sworn to celibacy. An interesting point there, if they were exceptionally brave, they might be able to make a match, marry a nobleman after they retired, essentially. So you could, there was a lot of social rising potentially if you were an exceptional warrior. Yeah, and they trained rigorously. Eventually, they fought alongside the royal guard as the kingdom's standing army, so along with the men, too. And there were about 4,500 men and women together. Yeah, and it eventually got to be even more than that. They were also notorious for their violence. They were known to torture and mutilate people who they had killed, and um, they were also 
well known for their marksmanship. By the 1840s, according to an article by Jeffrey Skelton in Military History, they could load and fire a flintlock musket in 30 seconds, while their their male counterparts were said to take 50 seconds. So some agility going on there, I guess. Yeah, agility and some fashion, too. They cut quite a figure, I would say. They wore white with blue crocodile badges on their hats, which when I saw a photo of this, Sarah sent me an image of it, and I think it looked like bows initially, so I was surprised to find out that they were crocodile badges. We should mention the picture I sent to Blina was an engraving of a woman actually holding a decapitated head, too. And to Blina, I think you said... If she's wearing a little blue bow on her head, that makes this image so much more disturbing. Definitely. Um, but now you know. It was a crocodile badge. Now I know. Now Perhaps. It, it's a little more <laughs> fitting, maybe. I don't know. You decide. But there was a little style change if they were elephant hunters also. They got to wear antelope horns. A whole headdress made out of antelope horns. So that would have been scary, too. I, I would say so. But in 1891, this is going to give you a, a good idea of what they looked like. They were described in three months in captivity in Dahomey like this. There they are, 4,000 warriors, the 4,000 black virgins of Dahomey, the monarch's bodyguard, motionless in their war garments, with gun and knife in hand, ready to leap forward at the master's signal. Old or young, ugly or beautiful, they are wonderful to look at. They are as well-built as the male warriors, and their attitude is just as disciplined and correct, lined up as though against a rope. Yeah, and with a description like that, it's no wonder that they became known as Amazons. And it was actually the French who took to calling them Amazons originally, right? Yes. Yeah, and it was the French who kind of got schooled by them, right, in 1892 when colonial forces fought up to 4,000 Amazons in the jungle. Several fights took place, one in which these Amazons supposedly had been driven into a frenzy by English gin, of all things, and would continue to fight even after being bayoneted with their hands, feet, and teeth. Yeah, so they just didn't quit. And ultimately, the French prevailed and took Dahomey, which is today part of Benin. Um, but the Amazon troops, they were disbanded. They didn't totally go away, though. Obviously, their troop is disbanded, but the women themselves are still around. And I found postcards from long after the fact. I mean, it, it, as late as the 1920s of pictures of the women, you know, obviously middle-aged by this point, but also still kind of scary looking and tough too, posing. And I think they visited Europe at one point to show off their fighting skills with with some of the male warriors as well. Uh, So a, a very strange end, I'd say, for this group of elite fighting women who existed for centuries. Yeah, sort of becoming a novelty. Yeah. Conveniently, our next subject also did become somewhat of a novelty herself later in life. Yeah, maybe not through postcards. Not through postcards, but that was long after a very adventurous, very impressive military career. Yes, our next subject is Catalina de Arauso, who is also known as the Lieutenant Nun, and she has been frequently requested by listeners. I think we've gotten at least two or three requests just in the past couple of months when I've been working on the podcast, and one recently that was very interesting. It was from a listener named Marcia in California, and she suggested, actually she begged us to do a podcast on this topic and said that she would make a deal with us, right, Sarah? She did. It was 
was an offer we couldn't refuse. Yeah, she said that she would, um, as a professor in California, she would have her students do a podcast-style research project. Yeah, in exchange for us doing a podcast on Catalina. So here you go. I hope it I hope it still counts, even though she's part of a list. Even though she's part of a list, we'll still cover a lot of details about her and um, hopefully your students will thank us. Hopefully they'll have fun with their project. So to go ahead and get into her life, she was born in San Sebastian in northern Spain on February 10th, 1592. And right off the bat, we have sort of a questionable date there, because in her autobiography, I think she lists a different year. She lists 1585, but 1592 is the recorded year of her baptism. So right away, we can see that some of the details throughout this are going to be kind of sketchy. A date conundrum. Yeah. Keep it in mind. So some say her family was middle class. Others say that her family was pretty wealthy, which is probably more accurately the case, which we'll see later on. But either way, Catalina ended up in a Dominican convent at about age four, along with three of her sisters. Yeah, and her four brothers, on the other hand, headed off to join the Spanish military in the Americas. But you could tell pretty early on that Catalina would have rather been doing what her brothers were doing and going off to the Americas. She supposedly wanted to, quote, travel and see the world. So she escaped from the convent around 1603. And again, that date sounds a little weird, depending on when you calculate her birth from, but just assume she was around 15 years old at the time. She cut her hair. She made these man looking clothes for herself, um, cutting up a blue skirt in order to create a pair of britches. And Another example of cross-dressing. I know, it keeps on coming up in the, in the episodes recently. But she apparently passed off pretty well when she had her, her new pants. Yeah, she was really effective after she made these changes in passing as a man. And I think we should stop right here to reflect on the fact that this makes her maybe a little different from some of the other women on this list and some of the other women we've talked about recently in that she lived her life, which we're going to discuss in a, in a minute, as a man. So, yeah, she wasn't dealing with some of the adversities, for instance, Nakano was dealing with men not wanting to fight with her because, hey, they just thought she was another guy. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that was so even to the point that when you read about her nowadays and you're talking about her years as a man, many people will use a male personal pronoun to describe her. But you'll notice that we keep using she a lot throughout this podcast just because we tried to keep it consistent. But just a little explanation for that. So she's passing as a man. She stays in Spain for more than about three years after that, wandering around, serving a variety of masters, just doing jobs here and there. Then she sets out for the Americas where she travels around a bit, eventually heads to Peru, where she joins the Spanish military. So helping the Spanish crown in its efforts to colonize the Americas. And she did that for about 15 years. And she's changed her name at this point, too. Yep, she is Antonia Ramirez de Guzman, a brave soldier in the colonial army. That's how she's known. It was a battle in Chile, though, fighting the Aracano Indians in which Catalina, then known as Antonio, was promoted to lieutenant. She risks her life in this battle to recover a royal flag, and she describes going after it right into the enemy mob along with two other soldiers who were on her side, and they were killed in the process. She herself took three arrows and a spear, but still survived to be promoted. 
Yeah, and even after that military glory, though, she wasn't made permanent commander of the company because she hung an Arakano chief when she was supposed to take him alive. And so that brings us to another side of Catalina. She was a bloodthirsty conquistador. And, I mean, conquistadors already have a reputation for that. She was a gambler. She had a quick temper. Uh, she took part in a lot of duels, and sometimes she killed her opponents in them. Sometimes she ended up in prison, and she'd always find a way out, always found a way to escape punishment. And one of her strategies, strangely enough, was to hide in churches, kind of a throwback to her time in the convent, yeah, certainly perhaps. certainly seems so, right? <laughs> Maybe she knew the ins and outs and the secret hiding home. places. <laughs> On one of those occasions is when she confessed her biological sex, though. She confessed to a friar who then told the bishop in the area. So the secret is out at this point. After that, she spends a couple years in a convent at Lima where she has to start wearing female attire again until finally she's sent back to Spain in 1624 for an audience with Philip IV. And he actually rewards her for her many years of service with a pension and the right to continue wearing male attire. So she kind of pleads her case to him, both from afar and in person, and he he agrees that she deserves this. Then she goes to see the Pope, and he also says that she can keep dressing like a man. Which is so bizarre. I I. Don't usually imagine the Pope being okay with that. Well, she did remain a virgin and all. I mean, and apparently that was kind of crucial, wasn't it? That was something that made it legitimate that she had been dressing like a man and fighting alongside men for, for so long. Yeah, I think that we were discussing it a little bit and a lot of people who cross-dress have been thought of over the years as sexual deviants in a way, but she proved that she wasn't. I think when she was back in South America and all of this first started to come out, uh, the bishop there actually had her examined by a couple of nuns, and she was found to be a virgin. Yeah, and I mean, it also didn't hurt that she did have decent family connections, that perhaps her family was well off. That was another point in her favor for being allowed to continue uh, living a life that was quite different from the standards of the time. Yeah, and I think that is a point that she made to the king also when she was kind of pleading her, her case. And and I think, as we mentioned before, about her becoming a novelty, that was an aspect of it, too. She wasn't really viewed as a man or a woman. She was some kind of hybrid that nobody knew of. And they were she became very popular in that respect. Nobles liked to invite her places. And she was well thought of at the time, or at least interesting. Yeah, and she, she runs with that. She writes an autobiography between 1625 and 1630, knowing that people wanted to hear her story. And in 1630, she also moved back to the Americas and died about 20 years later in Mexico, having led a, a very impressive, if very strange life. Yeah, she's an interesting character because she was one who, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, you definitely can't say she was always a likable character, but she was just a fascinating adventuress. Yes. So our final entry for this list is also a lady who kind of rocks on the one hand and is kind of terrifying and murderous on the other hand. And she is one of the most popularly requested topics, uh, especially for this series of women warriors. I think somebody even wrote on Twitter recently, when are you going to do a podcast on Boudicca? Surprise, that is the <laughs> subject. So Boudicca is Britain's original Queen Victoria because Boudicca 
means victory. And she's regarded as something of a national hero. But the comparison between the two queens definitely ends there. Boudicca was not starting wedding traditions or Christmas traditions, obviously. She was out crucifying Romans instead. Different kind of reputation entirely. Yes, I should say so. And her background is also pretty hazy, but here is what we know. She was born around AD 25 in Celtic Britain to a royal family. She eventually married Prasuticus, who was probably her cousin, who became king or the elected chief of the Iceni tribe. So Boudicca is queen, kind of, and her husband is on okay terms with Rome. Until, that is, Roman leadership betrays the family and the tribe. But we're going to go back a little bit before that and give you the background on what was going on with the Romans in Britain at this time and even a 100 years before. That's when they had gotten there. And interestingly, the Iceni, Boudicca's tribe, had been one of the first to welcome Caesar in 55 or 54 BC. But that first stage of Roman contact wasn't that bad. It was more about establishing trade, and it proved to be quite profitable for some of the tribes that participated. Uh, Caesar left, and so did the Roman military, and it it wasn't colonized rule or, or anything like that. But things changed in 41 AD when our old friend Emperor Claudius, who he's another one who always pops up in random episodes, he decided that Britannia would make a really nice addition to his empire. And he was he was especially thinking this because he had something to prove. You know, he he needed to make his name and getting Britannia as a colony would be a really good way to do it. Yeah, and it seems like he's going to get that fairly smoothly in the beginning. The Romans invade and the Iceni, along with 10 other British tribes, offer their formal submission to him. Yeah, and they're probably thinking, well, maybe it'll be like last time and we'll submit, we'll establish trade relations and the Romans will go back home. Not so much. No, that's not at all what happens. This time the Romans don't leave. They stay and they set up fortresses. They also install a governor and they order the Brits to surrender their weapons, which is the first big thing. Yeah, the Iceni are not okay with this at all. They rebel at this point. They're defeated. And Prasuticus, Boudicca's husband, is installed as their new king. So so he had not been the ruler up until this point. This is why we said early on that... Prasuticus, Boudicca, and Rome had an okay relationship with each other. He was essentially governing as a client king. But things do not get better for the British. Yeah, the governor establishes a colonia for retired legionaries, which is just a hotbed for violence and trouble. It's supposed to be a model Roman settlement, but that is not the case. And of course, it's also eating up local land, too. Yeah, and then the new emperor Nero commissions a temple to his uncle Claudius and has his financial officer in Britain call in debts issued as grants. So just getting more money, money from trouble. the British. <laughs> yeah, and in 61, the new governor of Britain, a guy named Suetonius Paulinus, decimates this druid stronghold at the Isle of Mona, which is defended just to give you an idea of 
of what the Romans were up against. It's defended by, quote, black-robed women with disheveled hair like furies, brandishing torches, and druids raising their hands to heaven and screaming dreadful curses. Pretty scary stuff, but the Romans end up winning, and after the victory, they cut down the island's sacred grove. So a real slap in the face to the Britons. But Boudicca's beef starts after all of this, and it's it's personal. Yeah, it starts after her husband dies and leaves half of his estate to the Emperor Nero and half to his daughters. And you've said, Sarah, that this is mostly a symbolic thing, right? I mean, he was it was a last-ditch kind of effort for him. He knew he was a client king. He ruled at the pleasure of Emperor Nero. But he was hoping that by making this sort of goodwill gesture, he might be able to secure a little bit of his fortune for his wife and his two daughters. It does not work, though. It completely backfires. No, the Roman financial officer doesn't honor the will. His estate is seized, Prasuticus's estate, that is. Boudicca is flogged and her daughters are raped. So Boudicca's pretty unhappy about the situation, and she starts gathering other angry tribes, many of which have been secretly hoarding weapons all the while. So before we any, go any further, just to give you a little description of Boudicca, she is described much later in a much later account as being very tall and grim in appearance with a piercing gaze and a harsh voice. She had a mass of very fair hair, which she grew down to her hips and wore a great gold torque and multicolored tunic folded around her, over which was a thick cloak fastened with a brooch. Yeah, so an imposing figure and a note to ladies don't, normally wear torques, which are giant gold necklaces, but Boudicca does. So the first strike is Camelodunum, which is the Roman capital in Britain. And they don't just charge right in. They have people on the inside, presumably Britons who are who are living and working there, who sort of set the stage by wigging out the superstitious Romans. And they do that by making the Statue of Victory fall. So it looks like it's been running out of the settlement and just gossiping too, you know, talking about, oh, I saw a ruined phantom settlement in the mouth of the Thames and women acting hysterically and talking about destruction and just getting everybody sort of on edge before the attack comes. As if they really needed to have that little intro pre-scare going on, Boudicca's army crushes the town. They destroy the temple and they kill everybody. And archaeological evidence even supports that this destruction actually occurred. There are shards of a clay wall that have been found that were essentially fired and hardened by the heat. So, I mean, it was a mud wall. Yeah. And now it's like a pottery wall. That kind of blows my mind. Um, but there are levels of ash everywhere. Total destruction took place. So after that, they took out the infantry of the Ninth Legion, just sort of pretty quickly. The cavalry managed to escape. And from there, they moved on to Londinium, which at this point was only about 15 years old. And it was unwalled. The Romans were feeling pretty cocky about it, I guess. And Governor Suetonius, who's been off fighting those druids in Mona, has just now returned, and he realizes that the town can't be defended, so he orders it evacuated. A lot of the women and the elderly stay behind, and basically everyone who does stay behind is slaughtered by Boudicca's angry Britons. 
Yeah, and this is what we meant before about we can't condone all the actions no. <laughs> that are reported in this podcast because that's that's pretty bad. But from there, she just keeps going. Um, they move on to another town which had close association with Rome, and once again, total destruction. They're there. punished for their association. But finally, Suetonius meets Boudicca with the 14th and the 20th, or at least part of the 20th Legion. And this time he chooses the ground and invites the attack. And the Romans are severely outnumbered, 10,000 to Boudicca's 230,000. But they are better trained and they have a little more military expertise. This, after all, is not just coming into unwalled Londinium and killing everyone. So Boudicca's troops charge and they are immediately showered with javelins. I feel like that happens a lot in a lot of these (laughs) battles we talk about. A showering of javelins, never something you want to see. The Brits' chariots don't prove very useful because they're in a very tight space and their long swords aren't good either because they're fighting in close quarters. The Romans have much shorter swords that are easier to to navigate in this cramped quarter. And the other problem is when they move to retreat after they realize, oh no, we're in this... We're actually losing. Yeah, they realize that they're blocked by their own wagons, which they've brought along with them so their women folk could watch the uh, the slaughter. The- yeah, and, and Boudicca herself arrived in a chariot with her two daughters. So this was really, this wasn't just a battle where all the, the men folk went off to fight. It was kind of a family affair. And I guess they were they were feeling pretty confident going into it with such strong numbers. But in the end, 80,000 Brits die and only 400 Romans. Boudicca manages to escape somehow. She dies of poison, um, potentially poisoned herself soon afterwards. But she's given a lavish funeral. She's treated as a hero and a queen. And all said and done, it seems like about 7,000 Roman troops were killed during the course of the rebellion. And a remarkable 70,000 civilians were killed in the city. So pretty big damage from Boudicca. Yeah, and though the rebellion was followed by heavy Roman suppression, violence, famine, Britain eventually became one of the more orderly Roman colonies. So no thanks to Boudicca, no, though, right? No, she did not, did not uh, contribute to that state of being. So I guess that wraps up our list of women warriors. And of course, we've done a few earlier episodes throughout the month on other famous women fighters. And we hope you've enjoyed it. A little treat for the month of March. Uh, if you have any more, I mean, we're always, maybe we'll take a break for a while, let peace prevail. But um, <laughs> if you have more suggestions, definitely feel free to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com or to uh, comment on Twitter, we're at Missed in History or on Facebook. Yeah, and you can also find us on the How Stuff Works blog. Sarah and I blog every week, and sometimes we blog about these podcast topics, so you may see a little more about women warriors there. Sometimes we blog about history news, if you don't think that's too much of a paradox. But you can check them out on our homepage by visiting www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. 
How Stuff Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.